From the Chronicle Podcast System, this is the NPC Podcast of the National Pharmaceutical Congress, for December 22, 2021. The NPC Podcast was created to discuss and consider the purpose, process and people of the pharma industry during the COVID era. We'll continue the healthcare conversation by answering questions sent by listeners, just like you. This program is presented in cooperation with Imprez, Canada's next-generation commercial partner. The industry is rapidly evolving, and Imprez is designed to help you evolve with it. Learn more about Imprez tailored best-in-class solutions at www.imprez.com. Our guest today is Mark Levonen, co-chair, Canada's COVID-19 Vaccine Task Force. He'll join your hosts, Jim, Mark, and Mitch, to talk about the progress the task force has made, as well as what lies ahead. To start the conversation, here is Mitch Shannon, CEO of Chronicle Companies. Welcome to the NPC Podcast. I'm your co-host, Mitch Shannon. Joining me today in the podcast, Gondola, overlooking Center Ice, is James Shea, General Manager at the Council for Continuing Education. Hi there, Jim. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Yeah, you can call me Jim, by the way. Can I? Yeah, yeah, please. All right, Jim. And the third member of our hosting panel is Mark McElwain, the consultant and health policy expert. Hello, Mark. Greetings from lovely Leeside. And collectively, we are known as Jim, Mark, and Mitch, a brand that tested well with focus groups, especially because all the cool names were already taken, like The Squad and Young Rascals. Jim, Mark, are we excited about this new three-host format? I am. Well, I know I am. Yep. All right. We have as our first guest under this new regime, a friend of the program, Mark Levenen. Mark is the co-chair of Canada's COVID-19 Vaccine Task Force. Mark, thanks for dropping by again. It's a pleasure, Mitch. So last time you were on the podcast was exactly one year ago when you spoke about your role as co-chair of Canada's COVID-19 Vaccine Task Force. That was prior to the rollout of the vaccines. Here we are a year later, most of the Canadian population is vaccinated. How would you say the report card looks on the rollout? Well, it is amazing what's happened in the past year, and we'll dwell on that in the future questions as well. But, you know, I think the rollout's actually gone quite well. Now, not everybody would agree with me. And in the beginning, there were sort of a lot of bumps along the way. I think of it really as almost a tortoise in the hair. So Canada got off to a somewhat slow start but we were persistent. And as you just mentioned, Mitch, we've got two vaccination rates that are among the highest in the world. We should always remember we're part of a federal, provincial, territorial process. And so the federal government has a role, the provinces and territories have a role, and in many provinces, uh, local health units have a role as well. So there's a lot of things to organize, a lot of logistics. They say uh, it started off a little bit slow. I know people were hypercritical, And I received many calls from friends of mine about issues that were not within my purview, but they wanted to talk to me anyway. But I am delighted and pleased with how the rollout eventually turned out. Very good. A year later, is the current state of the world during the pandemic anything like the way you expected it to be? Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, first of all, a year ago, I would not have imagined that we would have had the success with the vaccines that we have. Think about it, we were just starting the process and it was unheard of to have vaccines develop this quickly and rolled out this quickly. So on the one hand, I look at it and say, we've had far greater success in the year than I could have imagined. Having said that, 
If I thought that would be the case, I'm surprised to some extent that the pandemic is still with us as much as it is. And just every time we think we might turn the corner, it hits us again and again. And I think one point that was made from the very beginning by a number of people, and we might have lost sight of it, but it's still present now, is if there is disease anywhere, it's everywhere. And I think we might have lost sight of that. So the vaccine strategy is far greater than we might have thought in terms of success. But I think the cases are more than we would have thought would have been the case given a successful vaccine strategy. Yeah, we're going into another pandemic holiday season, although at this point we're going in vaccinated for the most part. How important do you think it is this whole booster shot process for the entire strategy? I think it's extremely important, Jim. I think one of the things, this is a crisis, it's a pandemic, and you know things changed throughout this process. Things were changing weekly, sometimes daily, sometimes hourly. Whatever we learn and say today, we should really caveat in that regard. Like, this is what we know right now. Based on the science that we know right now, this will be what happened. These vaccines, you know, I've talked about typical vaccine development taking 10 to 15 years. The fastest ever was four to five years for mumps and Ebola. This was going to maybe be 12 to 18 months, was actually faster. So the vaccine development and registration and licensure process, manufacturing and distribution was at breakneck speed. What we did lose, though, is there's certain things that can only happen over time. And some of the early work that would have been done around dosing regimens, how many doses does it take? What should the dosing interval be? How many micrograms should be in a dose? Decisions were made very quickly to go with results that were satisfactory. And thank goodness we did, because otherwise we wouldn't have had vaccines. But we did lose some of that knowledge. And so while we started off with two-dose regimes, and that seemed to be the case, and the data uh, supported that, of course, we only know the duration of protection for as long as we've had the vaccines in existence. So will something last six months, a year, two years, or three years? I can only tell you when we get to six months, one year, two years, or three years. And I think what we found now, and I'm giving you a different answer now than I might have a month ago, certainly two months ago, that these really are, at this point in time, three-dose vaccine regimes. Whether you call it a three-dose primary series, whether you call it two doses and a booster, I think the booster dose right now, again, based on what we know at this point in time, that third dose is as every bit as essential as the first two. We're certainly living the world's largest clinical trial right now. And as an ex-Merck rep who actually sold vaccines, I looked back through this whole process and it is truly phenomenal. It's just amazing what we're living through right now. And it's a testament to all the scientists and all the people out there, including people like you who, you know, are living this on a daily basis. And maybe the next question should be something like, you know, what was it like really personally for you? Because I've, I've had the pleasure of reading your expanded bio and you've done so much people don't know about. But for you personally, what was it like being in the, the eye of the hurricane during this whole rollout? Yeah, it was quite something. And it really came at an interesting point of time. I don't know whether it's karma or whatever, but as you know, I retired from Sanofi Pasteur at the end of 2016. I'd been there 33 years. I'd been the CEO of a Canadian company for the past 17. And I entered into what I will call retirement 1.0. And for the first few years, I was doing board work, advisory work, looking for some things to do to be kind of busy enough, but not too busy. And that was going very well. 
And some things happened to wind down for me at the time that I got the call to take on uh, the co-chair of the vaccine task force, which was really March, April, May of uh, 2020 when we first started the work. And it became an all-consuming activity for the next, well, for 19 months. We've been at it for 19 months. And it really was a chance to uh, work with a fabulous group of people in the vaccine task force. And the government sought our advice and really had quite a bit of activity in the beginning. It was quite intense. It's uh, lessened to some extent now, though having said that, we happen to have had a meeting Monday and a meeting Tuesday. We have one more next week. So uh, there continues to be activity. But it really was something to be as part of the vaccine task force and then exposed to other groups as well. So there was the work we did as the vaccine task force. I chaired the joint biomanufacturing subcommittee, and we'll talk about that, but also connected with other government groups and other public health groups and scientific groups. And a couple observations, as mentioned, this was a crisis. And I think it was Alice McGeer I saw in the news who said, it's a crisis. Things change every day. That's why they call it a crisis. And to see how quickly things would change, how our knowledge would change, how complex this was, it's incredibly complex. The disease, the virus, the strategy, the public health measures. You know, everybody says we need appropriate public health measures. I totally agree. Try to get agreement on what that means. And there was just so many moving parts. You know, there's a period of time when the whole vaccine manufacturing, our past, our present, and our future was on the national news. And there was a period of time where I thought my whole working career is now front and center on CBC. They're talking about Connaught Labs and the acquisition and the past and the future, stuff I lived. I almost felt like some of my planning meetings, which nobody would care about at all, were now on the front news. People wanted to know about vaccines and, and the National Advisory Committee on Immunization and dosing regimes and all these things. And it was just amazing sort of the exposure. People wanted answers. People wanted perfection. I think that was one of the challenges. And I would say the single biggest challenge for me, if I look back on all of it, is communications. Because the situation is so complex and changing, and there's so many voices involved, and some of it, frankly, is being made up on the spot with good reason. I mean, we haven't gone through a pandemic like this since 1918. There was a number of voices in the media, in the news, for the public to hear, and it's created confusion at times. No question. Sometimes, you know, we would see the scientific debate occurring in the public. Normally, those things would be behind closed doors or in rooms and the results would just come out. But the public was witnessing it and participating in it. And, uh, you know, one of the things that struck me early on was how people were starting to have opinions about what vaccines they should get. So you go in and get a flu vaccine. Nobody, except me, actually, I would ask because we made it. But virtually nobody would ask, what flu vaccine am I getting? What polio vaccine am I getting? What diphtheria tetanus vaccine am I getting? People now were starting to have opinions as to which vaccine they wanted, which just blew me away. You know, and I, I knew people I'd meet on the street who had nothing to do with this. Yeah, yeah, I really want Pfizer versus Moderna. I look at you, you do? <laughs> what basis do you have to make this decision? Anyway, extremely complex, everything on the news. I know some people were overwhelmed by it. I went through a period of time. I was a bit of a COVID-19 news junkie. I wanted to absorb everything I could, but it did become challenging in discerning some of the opinions that you agreed with and some that you didn't agree with. And my wife would say, People have asked her, you know, am I still involved? What am I doing? What's going on? She says, oh, he loves it. He's totally energized by it. So that's not coming from me. That's coming from her witnessing some of the activities. 
One last comment on that, I would say is, you know, we all learned to work through Zoom and I hadn't been doing any Zoom in the beginning, very little. And most of the members on the vaccine task force and the secretariat, I've never met yet. I've never met them in person. I know a couple of them from the past and I know of them, but we've never got together. And I think it's amazing that I'm talking to you or I'm talking to them through my iPad. My iPad is the link to the world. We appeared before cabinet. We appeared before standing committees on an iPad. I did it on an iPad. Just amazing. So, Mark, as they say in MBA seminars, what have we learned from this, comrade? You know, are there any key learnings or takeaways from the process that might be applicable to, let's say, other difficult diseases, Alzheimer's comes to mind? Well, I really hope, and this will be one of my key messages going forward, that we don't lose sight of the need for pandemic preparedness going forward in some form or another. My concern, and I've seen this and lived this, and you probably all have as well, is we can have kind of a major issue, a major initiative, it consumes everybody, then it gets dealt with, and presumably COVID-19 will be dealt with at some point, and then it's easy to go back to the same old, same old and not do anything. And I think there will be more of this in the future. There will be more pandemics. I strongly believe in the whole integration of climate change and population growth and animal health interacting with humans and this whole one health issue. And I strongly believe there will be more pandemics in the future, more of these kind of issues. So I hope that we have the preparedness in place. Mitch, to your question, I think one of the very unfortunate and sad things related to not just COVID, but some of our responses, some of our lockdowns and some of our other measures has been the increase in other diseases and health issues such as mental health and delays in treating things and diagnosing things like cancer, Alzheimer's, any number of issues. I still don't have the answer to this question. You know, we kind of shut down doctor's offices and hospitals because of the fear of infection. That always struck me as odd because I thought they were the experts at controlling this stuff. So I assumed that the safest place would be my doctor's office, but apparently that wasn't the case. I was safer in a grocery store than a doctor's office. And I'm really concerned about We had certain challenges with our health system, as I think all of you would agree, in terms of resourcing. And while we spend a lot of money on it, we still have not enough resources. One of the issues with the intensive care unit beds is there weren't enough of them. You know, as much as we've invested in healthcare, we need more. The system was on the verge of breaking at any point in time for any crisis anyway. And so when you take a system that's operating at full capacity, and then you expose it to a little bit more, things tend to break down. So we already had delays for MRIs, certain types of surgery, uh, certain other procedures that far exceeded what they should be. In my opinion, our wait times were far greater than they should be. And this has just made it worse. And now we've got a catch up to do. On the bright side, and some of these are you know restrictions and policies and guidelines, but the virtual medical that is now allowed I mean, I think people were against that before, but the fact I've seen my doctor virtually through uh, Zoom appointments more than I have in person is marvelous. It's marvelous from saving time and, and energy. My wife had an appointment and she was seeing a specialist for a certain issue and she had to have an MRI. And normally we would travel two hours to downtown Toronto and wait for an hour and see the specialist and have a 10 minute conversation and then have lunch and come home. And that would be a whole day of it. They apologized to say, you know, we're so busy. We'll phone you if there's an issue. I thought, this is great. This is a victory. But back to the point of the question, Mitch, there's no doubt with all of the activities that are going on, our aging population, 
the stresses that this thing has created, and I don't mean just COVID and the disease, I mean the implications of the economic shutdown, the physical shutdown, people having to be on their own, and the issues it's created. As much as we talk about it, I still believe we've underestimated the impact. You're listening to Mark Liebenen on the NPC podcast. Next question is from Mark McElwain. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the federal government's biomanufacturing and life sciences strategy that you've been working on, Mark. One of the goals is to put us on better footing for the next pandemic. Uh, you were just talking about the importance. But I'm asking what you'd like people to know about the state of that planning, how you personally feel about our readiness with regard to the next pandemic. Yes, well, you may know this. I'm basically an optimist by nature. I just tend to approach life that way. And when I look at the biomanufacturing life sciences strategy, which is something I've been fascinated about for years, I am optimistic about where it's going. Our task force, along with the Joint Biomanufacturing Subcommittee, which I mentioned I chaired, provided advice to the Government of Canada on biomanufacturing investments, pandemic preparedness, and the life sciences strategy in biomanufacturing. I'm very pleased with the efforts underway. You've heard a number of announcements regarding investments to be made. And the government has announced the strategy itself, which I'm very pleased about. And they're planning on doing more about that in the future. And I think we'll hear more about that. So I think it's terrific that we're doing that. I think it's so badly needed for the country and it's a real opportunity for Canada. Some of the points that many of us have argued or advocated for for years are now more front and center and have a more receptive audience. And the need for these things is seen as being greater than it was before. Two caveats. I do really think, as I mentioned previously, we've got to make sure it stays front and center. We've got to keep the momentum going. I will do whatever I can in speaking at different groups and things and to different people to advocate for that. And so there is this concept of a pandemic preparedness center at the heart of biomanufacturing life sciences strategy. However, that gets defined. That has to be an ongoing entity going forward to prepare for future pandemics. At the same time, then, all of these investments that are being made, they really need, in my view, to be knit together, to be integrated. So it's one thing to make the investments as one-offs. The government working with industry and the provinces and academia and scientific groups really needs to look at how do you take an integrated approach to all of this? So when you make these investments, how do you make sure they are available for the future when we need them? So I'm very positive. I'm not naive enough to think that there are challenges with what we need to do to go forward. There's a lot more to be done, and we'll see where the government ends up with this and their advisory groups and their implementation going forward. But I'm very excited about where we are, but we're only partway. It needs to continue. Well, Mark, when you were consuming the media on this earlier, there was often a focus on whether we were going to have a COVID vaccine manufactured in Canada. So I'm wondering your view on whether that is likely to happen soon or and perhaps whether we should care, whether it's really important. So it has not happened yet, as you know. So we just heard that Medicago just announced some promising clinical trial results. And so we're very encouraged by that. We should be as a country. There's a number of other companies at an earlier stage that have been developing vaccines against COVID-19. And so it may very well be that we will have vaccines down the road in the sort of intermediate term. Our mandate for the task force was to provide advice to secure safe and effective 
COVID vaccines for Canadians as soon as possible. And we knew early on that would not necessarily be a Canadian solution, but we did recommend an advanced purchase agreement with Medicago, but that there would be a role for them to play down the road. You know, as I say, everything is changing with COVID. Some people may say, well, the battle's over. We've got the vaccines and it's just a matter of time. On the other hand, there are other vaccine technologies that have not come through. I mean, it was very interesting that RNA vaccines, the newest technology was the fastest. The traditional vaccines, such as protein subunit or inactivated, have not yet been approved. They are underway. There's a number of companies pursuing those. And they may have a role. And they may have a role as a booster. And they may have a role in providing broader protection against variants. So I don't think the story is over yet. I think we will see some Canadian vaccines potentially down the road. But beyond that, when you look at the supply chains to produce these vaccines, in some cases, it could be 200 ingredients or components that go into it. And I think Canada has an opportunity to be a a supplier, a global supplier of different aspects of the supply chain. And that's extremely important for the world supply and for our supply. And when you get into that game, you can then start to leverage some of that in terms of agreements coming back into places. So for example, the lipid nanoparticle technology out of Vancouver with Peter Cullis's group and others is a well-known center of excellence. There's a number of companies that played a role there in the existing vaccines. I mean, that's just one example of an opportunity to build upon. We've seen investments in the National Research Council and other groups. So I think people will be stepping forward and it's going to be a challenge, but how do you integrate all of these components into the supply chain and how do you leverage what's there? It's not easy. It's going to be complex. And it's a great opportunity for the biopharmaceutical industry overall, both the large players and the medium and smaller players. What role do they all play and how do we integrate some of this? And so I'm very optimistic about what will happen, but it's a challenge. Now, that's pretty interesting because it'd certainly be nice for Canada to get back to becoming a leader in vaccines. It was always a point of pride for sure. And certainly in your previous career, one of the most important manufacturers here in Canada. So let me throw on my learning and development hat here for a second. You talked about transitions and Certainly, this comes into continuous learning. Based on your bio, you've certainly been learning all your life and obviously applying what those learnings have been. Now, you went from running the day-to-day business at Connaught, and basically you're in there with your sleeves up doing that. And now you're going into what I'll say is a governance role uh, with respect to boards and, and being appointed to boards. So, you know, what are the differences between running a day-to-day business? being on the the Canadian task force for vaccines, and then providing governance to startup organizations? Yeah, it's certainly interesting, and it's very motivating, and I get a lot out of it. So when I retired, you know, it's funny, people say, oh, you're retired. And so now I say, yes, I'm retired from Connaught Labs slash Sanofi Pasteur, but I'm not really retired from business or from life. And it's different activities. I'm on a few publicly traded boards. I'm helping a few smaller companies as they're trying to get to that stage. And I'm seeing the challenges associated with that. It's very interesting for those of us in big pharma and biopharma and so on. And I think about myself and my colleagues and peers at the RX&D board table and the Biotech Canada board table. You know, we all thought we had it pretty tough. And we all ran, despite our problems, we ran, for the most part, growing, self-sustaining, generated financial returns businesses. No tales out of school. We had to deal with global corporate bureaucracy and things like that. 
but we weren't worried about where our next dollar was coming from and we were growing in some sort or the other. A lot of these companies are trying to figure out. And by the way, I used to, and I'd say this about my objective setting process at the Sanofi Pasteur. I used to think it was pretty good, but I was pretty critical. I remember working with my team and I'd always think we could take objective setting and strategic planning to a higher level. And I was somewhat critical of our processes. Well, having stepped aside and looked at the world elsewhere, and I phoned my executive assistant to tell her this, I said, we were friggin' rocket scientists. That process, as much as I thought it had warts and things, was 12 out of 10 or something. It was pretty spectacular because the world struggles with this. And think about small companies with limited resources and kind of making this up as you go. It's challenging. And the number one learning is nothing is easy in terms of advancing technology and building organizations and putting in governance kind of two steps forward, one step backward. People will say that in the past there was not enough capital and that was the main issue. Now I've heard a lot of the venture capitalists and others say, we have the capital, it's management and finding that management. And it's easy to assume when you work in a large organization like Sanofi Pasteur with the manufacturing and R&D expertise that it's plentiful, but you quickly realize it's a training ground for others and there's a lot of knowledge there. So it's like intellectual mind candy for me. I love kind of the board advisory committee work because I like to deal at that kind of level. You know, really don't want to get right in the trenches of writing the business plan. I'm happy to contribute to it and add value. Governance is a big area for me. I I was fortunate while I was at Sanofi Pasteur all those years, I did get involved with a lot of external groups early on. And part of that actually was my own realization that the only organization I knew was Sanofi Pasteur. So you talked about personal development and leadership. That was mine. And I was very fortunate to get on a board with the late John Evans early on, who I still think is the greatest business leader mentor I've ever had. I also had Cal Stiller and Joe Rotman, the late Joe Rotman, were other people I worked with early on. And I was able to work with the industry groups, also, you know, the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research and my local hospital foundation, other companies. I had a wide range of experience while I was with Sanofi Pasteur and governance strategy, organizational effectiveness. Those are all passions for me. And those are areas I like to bring to bear on these companies. And when I get involved with an organization, I want to do whatever I can to make it as successful as it can be while I'm involved. I want to make sure I'm not just going through the motions, but I'm involved. I have a nice balance right now of things I'm doing. It ebbs and flows. Sometimes it can be very frustrating, of course, but it's very active. It keeps me going. And frankly, The Zoom world that allows me to do all of this virtually from home is very beneficial for me. If I was doing this the way we used to on the road all the time, you know, I did 2 million miles with Air Canada. So, I I mean, I've done that, lived out of hotels and airplanes, but it's something I'm glad I'm not doing now. So this world has actually worked out quite well for me. Well, that's great. I think that leads us to our last question. So to wrap things up, Mark, we get to try out our new feature on the NPC podcast, a segment we call the NPC Prognostication Corner, corner spelled with a K, of course. As we get to the end of 2021, Mark, what do you have as predictions for 2022 that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, the first one I'll share, but I would have shared this last year, the year before. Every year at this time, not every year, but for the last two years, I've said, I think next summer will be a lot better than this summer. I hope I'm right this time. It kind of ebbs and flows, but I hope we'll get pandemic behind us and we can get on with these things. I am concerned when we see the vaccination rates that we have, 
if you'd said to me a year ago, we're going to have these kind of vaccination rates and we're still going to have these kind of cases breakthrough and otherwise, I, I would have been doubtful. I think there's stuff going on here we don't necessarily understand. And that's part of it happening at warp speed. But I do hope we will take the right measures and get this behind us and survive and survive economically and psychologically and from other health perspectives. So I do think next summer will be better than it has been. But that is a prediction I've said in the past. And I hope we'll get inflation behind us. I mean, I'm watching the news and all these worrying trends. So we've got tornadoes across the United States. We've got Omicron and variants. We've got political trials and tribulations. We've got inflation raising its ugly head like it hasn't had in the past. And all of these are concerns, and I hope we get them under control. And I don't know about you guys, my first house way back in the 80s, I paid 18% mortgage, and then the nominal rate was 22%. So my first three mortgage rates were 18%, 16.5%, and 13.5%. And you don't forget those. And you know we haven't seen that for a long time. So uh, there's a lot to tackle. As I said, I am an optimist. So I think we'll get there, but there's going to be bumps along the way. Well, that's great. You've been listening to Mark Levenin, co-chair of Canada's COVID-19 Vaccine Task Force on the NPC podcast. Mark, thanks for your insights. That was great. Pleasure. Nice to be with you, Mitch, Mark, and James. If you have questions for our guest or comments for us about today's conversation, tag us on Twitter at 2021NPC. You can also send email to health at chronicle.org. Attach a voice clip to your message and you might appear in an upcoming episode. If you like today's NPC podcast, please share it with your colleagues. Find us at Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode brings us to the end of 2021. We hope you've made it through the year in decent shape, along with the people and things you care about. The NPC podcast is presented in cooperation with Imprez, Canada's next generation commercial partner. Check them out at www.imprez.com. Your announcer is Leona Void, of Chronicle Companies. The podcast producer through 2021 has been Jeremy Visser. The musical theme is performed with warmth and passion by the NPC Podcast Orchestra, under the direction of Maestro Eberhard Milbrook. We'll be back on January 12th with our guest, Dr. Ted Wittek of the University of Toronto, so send us some questions for Ted. Till then, we wish you the best of the season, and a healthy new year. Peace out. <laughs>